Amen. Amen. Thank you, friend. Good evening, church. Great to be with you. What a glorious day we're having. Wonderful. Um, Great if you're listening online as well, if you're listening on the podcast or you're watching online on YouTube. Thank you very much um, for tuning in to our sermon series. We're tracking through the book of Mark. Have you been enjoying tracking through the book of Mark? It's been great, hasn't it? Love Mark's gospel. Love um, what Mark is saying to us about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And uh, tonight we're going to jump into Mark chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn it on to Mark 15 or um, turn the pages to Mark chapter 15? We'll get there in a minute. Um, But just before we do, I want to, um, to ask you a question. And that is, um, have you ever been in a situation or have you ever found yourself in a situation and thought, how on earth did I get here? How on earth did I get here? How How did this happen? That almost kind of like, what? I mean, how did we get here? It might be with friends, it might have been with family, it might have been a good experience that you, you found yourself in, it might have been a less than positive experience. But how did we get here? I um, found myself in one of those situations um, a couple of months back. Back in February, a friend of mine um, sent me a text and he said, um, I've just put myself in to do this event, would you like to join me? And um, at the time, I didn't know what the event was. And so I said, sounds interesting. Um, he said, it's in the Cotswolds, um, so it's quite near to you. Would you like um, to join me? And um, so again, I thought, well, you know, maybe. And um, so um, I replied, said, I'll have a look at it and let you know. So I then went online. The event's called Quest Stars. Um, and it's part of the Quest Stars Adventure Challenge. And um, so I thought, Quest Stars, yes, I, I mean, I've always wanted to be the fifth member of Take That, you know, I've always, want, I've always found myself in my life on a quest to be a star, the fifth member of Take That. I've always fancied a challenge, I've always fancied an adventure, but what I came to discover that the Quest Stars Adventure Challenge was not the kind of challenge that I was expecting, um, James, I wonder if you could put the picture up, but basically, the Quest Stars Adventure Challenge is um, a little bit of orienteering, so that's map reading done really, really well, so you get to the right places um, on, on, on a map, all kind of like rolled in to um, kayaking, mountain biking, and then a little bit of um, um, trek running. And um, so I, I had a further look at the, the website, and I thought, yeah, this, this sounds quite fun. It could be a bit of, bit of a laugh. And... Um, I looked at the sort of the different levels of the different challenge, um, um, recognizing my own humility and my own age. I thought, well, we'd obviously be at the novice level. A novice level, basically, they say that apparently you do sort of a 20K mountain bike ride, 10K run, and a three to 5K kayak. And, um, and so I thought, okay, it's not until May, if I really kind of push myself and get into some training, I might be able to do it. And um, not being someone that's very good at mountain biking, I mean, I have a mountain bike. Um, I occasionally, occasionally being the optimum word here, ride it to work and back. Um, 
we live in Presbury. We basically go down sort of like Presbury Road into town, and that's pretty much it. As those of you that are f- familiar with Presbury Road, there aren't any mountains on it. And, um, but I thought, if there's going to be any mountains involved in this adventure challenge, I need to recruit someone that knows something about mountain biking. So um, I managed to cajole and invite um, good friend James Clapp. Now, if those of you that know James Clapp know that James Clapp is sort of a.k.a. Mr. Olympiad Gold. He is Mr. Sport Billy. There is probably no sport that James cannot lend his hand to. And I recruited him to do this adventure challenge. And so with Pete, who um, was a mountain biker and, could, and knew a lot about this adventure challenge, and James, Mr. Olympiad Gold, and then me. And I'm not going to tell you too much about it because I, I suggest you might want to think about doing it yourself. But all to say, it was brutal. It was brutal. Um, I foolishly thought, well, I'll leave the technicalities of map reading and orienteering to James and Pete. Um, basically, meaning that I would just step into the role of following. I would just follow the route. I just kind of like keep up with the guys um, if I could. And no, that was my first mistake. You see, um, trusting people who are slimmer, leaner, more muscly, and more experienced, more trained in these kind of sports than you is a big mistake. Because they knew how far they could push themselves. And of course, they were pushing me. And it was brutal. It was 27 degrees in May, um, similar sort of temperature to today. And as we Having done 15k of mountain biking on a relatively flat, we came around the bottom of Breeden Hill. Anyone that is um, is, is someone local to Ashton under Hill and that sort of like area of the Cotswolds, it is a 272 meter elevation. It's no small hill, and here's sort of like Podgy Gareth on his mountain bike in his lycra. Um, I did have other overshorts over my Lycra, so it was, a, it was a pleasant experience for everyone else around. But um, here we are at the beginning of this 270-meter ascent up Breeden Hill, and I am thinking, how on earth did I get here? What on earth was I thinking? I am no longer a spring chicken. You know, the body of Adonis has slipped into kind of like chubbiness in the most lovely way, I know, but I am not the man I used to be. Thankfully, we made it to the top, and wow, what a view. There, I mean, that is the top of Breeden Hill, incredible view, and it was an incredible ride down, but that's for another story. But the truth is, I found myself in this situation thinking, what on earth am I doing? Ever found yourself in that situation? How on earth did we get here? This is not what I'd sort of planned out. I think that's what the disciples were thinking in Mark 15. As we're going to look in a moment, Mark 15 is about the crucifixion. The brutal flogging of Jesus at the hand of Roman soldiers. His flogging and his execution. And I'm pretty sure that the disciples at the time were thinking, how on earth did we get here? You see, up until Mark chapter 8, and I want you to, if you've got a real Bible, you know, one of the paper ones, I'd like you to keep your finger in Mark 15 and turn over the pages to Mark chapter 8. Well done, Tim. 
And um, if you've not, flip over on your, your iPhone or, or whatever. But I just want to just, as a little bit of context um, for Mark 15, just um, set a bit of the context from Mark chapter 8, verses um, 27. You see, from the beginning of Mark's gospel, when Mark starts his gospel account, his story of the life and ministry of Jesus, when he says, you know, here is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Bold statement, proclamation, right out the front set, Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, God's anointed one. From that moment... Jesus starts to live out his identity as God's son, proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God in our midst. And we see the most incredible things. We see healing after healing. We, we hear proclamation of truth that, that, that people flocked to hear this man, Jesus, because people were saying, this is amazing what he's saying. You know, this is far, the, the teaching is, is something fresh. It's something new. It's far above anything else that we've ever heard from some of our other rabbis. This is good news. It's great news. It's amazing news. Now, sure, a little bit, they faced a little bit of opposition um, from some of the religious leaders, sort of like throwing some questions. But here in Mark chapter 8, things start to take a very different turn in Mark's gospel. Because there was something rising up. There was a, a new movement of Jesus' followers that were rising up. And then in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, we read this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? What an incredible question. Maybe that's a question that we should all ask ourselves on a regular basis, perhaps daily basis. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So things were going pretty well up until Mark chapter 8. And then we land here in Mark 8, 27, at this declaration of Jesus' identity by his followers, and particularly from Peter. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one sent from God. But uh, the thing about Peter's declaration is that as we discover, Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. Jesus isn't the kind of liberator that they were expecting that would lead them from the oppression of the Romans in the way that they expected or anticipated. And Jesus tells them to be quiet. He tells them to keep quiet. And, but, but Peter, being kind of Peter, you know, he's the kind of disciple that really says what, what he thinks and doesn't hold back. Jesus, Peter takes Jesus to one side and he's just like, you know, Jesus... Let's just kill some of this talk about um, death. Because in a few verses, Jesus goes on to say that the kind of Messiah that Jesus is going to become um, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, is that he is going to suffer, he's going to kill, be killed, and then he's going to rise again. And I don't know if you've 
ever thought about this, but if you really want to kind of like knock a movement, um, you know, kind of like off its direction, or if you really want to kill something, you know, talking about death from its leader doesn't really help in a, in a movement that's moving forward in a, new, in a new way. And so Peter takes Jesus to one side and he's like, Jesus, let's have, let's have an end to this conversation about, you know, your death. You know, trust us, you know, me and the boys, you know, and the ladies, you know, the disciples, we've got you. We've got your back. We're going to stand with you. We're not going to let you um, die. We're not going to let you be killed. And Jesus, in the most intense way, says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, it doesn't get much intense and forceful um, when in the accounts of the life of Jesus in what he says here. I mean, he does say to the religious leaders, you brood of vipers, that's quite offensive. But to one of your friends, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand the plans of God. You've only got the purposes of man. And in fact, Jesus goes on in Mark 8, then in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 to 37, and Mark 10, verse 32 to 45, again to talk about his death. Three times he tries to tell his disciples this is going to happen. I think Jesus is being so pastoral. I think he's being so compassionate. He's wanting to prepare his friends for what's about to happen. He's preparing their, their emotions. He's trying to you know, set the stall out. He wants them you know, to not be kind of too shocked by this, but of course they, they were shocked by this. But right at the end of Mark chapter 10, after Jesus' third sort of interaction, trying to tell his disciples, his followers, that he's going to die, he's going to be flogged, he's going to be killed, he says this, verse 45 of Mark 10, for even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way of Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one from God, Jesus was trying to sort of redefine their reality, redefine their understanding of, of the Messiah, is that the Messiah was going to come and suffer. He was going to serve, but he was going to bring a ransom for many, for thousands, for millions, as we've seen throughout history. The way of Jesus the Messiah is a, is a way of giving up your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, the way of Jesus is one of giving up your life for others. It's a way of sacrifice. It's a choice that you make when you make a choice to follow Jesus, that you're not going to live for yourself, but you're going to live for God's purposes, God's plans, and for the sake of others. And some of that may involve suffering. But I wonder if in a world of so much comfort in 2018, so much self-promotion and the pursuit of personal happiness, have we become so consumed by our culture? Have we absorbed our cultural values? Have we absorbed a, a culture that's, that, that says, you know, you know, you succeed at whatever the cost for yourself? That there, is a, that there is a right and an appropriate self-fulfilling way of living fulfilling for yourself. 
Jesus said this uh, just before he spoke about himself as the son of man who would give his life for a ransom. Verse 34 of, of Mark 8, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus talks about taking up a cross and following him. What a prophetic revelation from Jesus. So as we land here in Mark chapter 15 at verse 16, let's hear those words of Jesus that as followers of Jesus, we're to take up our cross, to deny ourselves for his sake and for his glory. We join the passage of the crucifixion just after the crowds have shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. And he's about to be flogged by the Roman soldiers. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. That is the praetorium. It was probably, the praetorium was probably the square in the palace. It could have been Pilate's, but it's likely to be one of the, the Roman generals. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. 
Someone ran, filled a sponge with vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Surely this man was the son of God. What an incredible statement of faith from someone you'd least expect it to be spoken from. One of Jesus' own executioners, a Roman soldier, made the first proclamation of Gentiles that here is Jesus, the Son of God. I think Mark wants us to understand from this passage and all that Jesus went through that Jesus is no stranger to pain and suffering. Jesus is no stranger to pain and suffering. We know because Mark gives account of it that Jesus was offered a drink of wine and myrrh. And that was quite typical for those who were being crucified. Because wine and myrrh, when it was mixed together, it became a little bit of a narcotic. It became a drug that meant that they would have encountered or experienced less pain. It was to sort of like make the crucifixion a little bit easier for the criminal that was being crucified. Mark tells us that Jesus refused it. So Jesus didn't take the easy road. Jesus didn't take the easy option. A little bit later, we're told that Jesus was offered some wine. We know from one of the other gospel accounts of the same passage that it was sour wine, and sour wine was, um, was, a, was, was given as a little bit of a stimulant. It kind of like kept the criminal um, going. It made them more alert. So Jesus didn't take the drugs to alleviate the pain, but took the sour wine so that he was more, the most aware of the suffering and the pain that he was going through for you and I. Jesus is no stranger to pain and suffering. And a little bit earlier, as I just read, when Mark told us that Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. And Luke, by the way, says, take up your cross daily. That it's not just a one sort of a, um, whimsical kind of like moment when you, or, or however it was for you when you became a Christian. But, but to, we, we die to ourselves on a daily basis, I think. And I think that's what Luke wants to, wants to say when he says you, we take up our cross daily. But when Jesus was speaking um, to his disciples back in Mark, Mark 8, he was speaking with such authority, with such revelation, and such prophetic utterance that, he, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the journey he himself is about to embark on, the cross. Jesus took up the cross for you. Jesus took up the cross for me, for all of us.
And as much as Jesus experienced and encountered the pain, and Mark wants us to, I think, to understand that, Jesus also knows what it's like when you're going through pain to feel abandoned, to feel alone, to feel that you are the only one that is in that situation and no one knows and no one cares and no one's helping whilst you are going through your stuff. Because Jesus knows what it's like to say, God, where are you? In the midst of my uncertainty, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of um, whatever it is that you may be going through in your journey in life, and it may not be bad, it may be, it may be good, and if it is, praise the Lord. But if it, it, might be, uh, it might be about sort of direction. It could be, it could be about um, you know, your finances. It could be about your relationships. It could be that you've been you know, seeking a relationship and you, f- you find yourself not in the place that you thought or imagined you were going to be and you are, you are still single and you know, you're saying, God, where are you in this? Because Jesus cries out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only prayer in the Gospels of Jesus that doesn't begin with the word Father. It's a cry of abandonment. It's a cry of desperation. And for a moment in history, the eternal Son was separated from the eternal Father. Why? Because holy God, in that moment, had to turn away from sin, from all the rebellion, from all the wrongfulness of humanity, all the stuff that we have done or failed to do that has been an act, knowingly or unknowingly, in rebellion to God's will and God's purpose. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the thing, I think, As much as Jesus' cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was a cry of abandonment. It was a cry of worship. It was a cry of worship. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice of worship for you and I to the Father. You see, as Jesus hung on the cross, he started to speak out the words of the hymn book of Israel. If you've got a Bible, turn over to Psalm 22. As we know, the book of Psalms is the, is the hymn book of Israel. And Jesus, as it were, lands in the... Spotify playlist of Psalm 22. And the first verse of Psalm 22 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse two, oh my God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer me. By night I am not silent. That's Gethsemane, isn't it? At night, Jesus crying out to the Father. Father, if it's possible, please take this cup from me. 
verses six and seven. But I am a worm, I am not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You know, do you hear the mockers from Mark 15 here in this song of worship of the son? This is a psalm of David. Jesus comes from the line of King David you know, right through this family genealogy of kingship that Jesus is from the Messiah, son of David, Scripture tells us. We have this incredible song of David, which is a prophetic song of the cross of Jesus. Let's just keep going quickly. Um, um, you know, verse eight, what, it, what was it that they shouted out? If he's the son of God, save himself. Here we are, verse eight. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Verse 10, from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Who but Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, could know that from virgin birth, from his mother's womb, he knew God. Who else could say that but Jesus Verse 15, my strength is dried up like, like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. My, my tongue sticks to my roof. That's the language of being thirsty. I'm thirsty, give me a drink, please. It's just like, it's, it's ending. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This psalm was written before Roman, ex- Roman crucifixion was even invented. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18, um, they divide my garments among them and cast lots on my clothing. We've just read that in Mark 15. And then the psalmist goes on, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. Here's where the the psalmist, from from the moments of desperation, of of abandonment, of feeling absolutely all alone, here is where the praise begins. You you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, here is this hymn of praise. And it's important to know that in the first century that whenever a rabbi quoted a verse, it was generally understood that the intent was that they were quoting the whole passage. So when Jesus was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus meant the whole psalm. And hear these final words from Psalm 22. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. He has done it. Matthew's account of the crucifixion, Jesus' final words, three words, it is finished. He has done it. All that's necessary to have been done has been done. Jesus has done it all. And with arms stretched out, I know sometimes we worship with our arms stretched out, don't we? That is 
so a worship posture of the cross, a sort of worship posture of Jesus. It is finished. It is done. The psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Finish with, it is finished. Where I think this lands, you see, when Jesus spoke out those words, it was a cry of worship on the cross. Where I think this lands for us is in the question, how much of your life is a cry of worship? How much of my life is a sacrifice of praise to the Father? With my work, in my work, with my friends, with my neighbors, with my finances, with the resources that I have, the skills that I have, how much of it is given over as a sacrifice of praise and worship to the Father? You know, we sing, don't we? I surrender all, I surrender all. But I wonder if in 2018, we're taking some of it back. And it's just like, Jesus, I surrendered, but I just need this. And when we surrender to Jesus, as Jesus invites us to do so, to take up our cross, we die to ourselves. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus here tonight, you, are not, you chose to live for Jesus for his purposes, for his plans, for his kingdom in the world, for his advancement, for his glory. None of it for you, none of it for me, none of it of ourselves, but all for him. One of the phrases that we've been bouncing around as a leadership team as part of the vision conversations is, is all in. Are we all in? Are we all in for Jesus? Will we take up our cross Will we sacrifice our lives daily? Is my life a cry of worship? The Apostle Paul put it like this as I come into finish. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The Lord wants us to live totally and utterly for him in a sacrificial way, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper Worship. That's the worship that the Father requires. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you believe God is good? Do you believe God is good? Do you believe God's got a purpose and a plan for your life? Will you trust him? Will you surrender all? Will you take up your cross? Hmm. Get a bit quieter there, don't we? Will we give everything for him? Eugene Peterson, the same passage from Romans 12, paraphrases those words of Paul and he puts it like this, and I think it's helpful. Not that the original isn't helpful from the NIV, but here's what I want you to do. And maybe these are words to reflect on this week for yourself. 
for me. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you, God helping you, empowered by the Spirit to live for him. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life and place it before God as an offering, as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, that's that cultural absorption, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. What a way to live. I think it's the best way to live. I haven't got it sussed, I haven't got it sorted, but I know I'm someone that has to surrender my life daily to the Lord Jesus. You may think, what's going on with your life? How did I get here? You know, maybe some of the places that you find yourself in are the consequences of poor decisions that you've made. But here is the truth from God's word. When we put our lives in utter surrender to Jesus, when we live all in for him, whoever and wherever he, when, whoever and wherever we give ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ and we surrender to him, we can be confident that he will bring to completion his purposes in us, his good and perfect will. That is his promise to all who will surrender and take up their cross and follow Jesus. Let's stand if you can. If you're new and you're visiting, we um, always give time at the end of our messages. This isn't the end. Um, we give space um, to respond to God's word. We believe that God's word doesn't return empty, but God's word goes out for the purposes of God's kingdom, of God's plans. And I want to encourage you in this moment to ask yourself the question, is my life a, li a cry of worship? Is my life a cry of worship? Let's be still for a moment. I'm going to invite us to close our eyes and to hold out our hands. That's a posture of receptivity. It's a posture of saying to Jesus, I'm here. Lord, I want whatever it is that you want for me. And um, I believe God's given me some things to share and we'll respond to, the, to those hopefully in a minute. But let's just be still for a moment. Holy Spirit, you're already here. Holy Spirit, would you come afresh again in this place? Holy Spirit, you've been speaking to us, to our minds and to our hearts. Holy Spirit, come. I encourage you in this moment with eyes closed to ask the Lord, what is it in this moment today that he's calling you to?
I wonder if for you, whether there's an area of life you have not surrendered to Jesus. Maybe you've not surrendered your marriage to Jesus. Maybe you've not surrendered your singleness to Jesus. Maybe you've not surrendered your desire to be in a relationship to Jesus. Maybe you've not surrendered your finances to Jesus. Maybe you've not surrendered your work relationships or your work pattern to Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would increase your presence. Increase your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, we need you. What is the Lord saying to you in this moment about your sacrifice of praise? I'm just going to share a couple of things. I encourage you to stay in this posture of receptivity, eyes closed, just responding to the Lord. And if, it, if anything that I share just speaks um, to your current situation, I want to invite you to come to the front so that we can pray for you. That's part of one of the things that we do here. We give space for the empowering presence of God's Holy Spirit, to, for God's Spirit, Jesus, Jesus' Holy Spirit to minister to us. And um, our experience has been that when we take those steps of faith, and it is a little bit of a step of faith and humility walking to the front because we're acknowledging, God, I need you. I need you to break in. And that posture of humility is so the walk of a Christian. If you're here tonight and you know that there are areas of your life that you are holding back from Jesus, that you're struggling to surrender to him, can I invite you to come to the front now so that we can pray for you? Just come. If there are areas of your life you're just struggling to surrender to Jesus, just come. Just come. No one's going to ask you what it is, by the way. We don't do that. But if there's areas of your life you know you need to hand over to Jesus, surrender it to him. If you're upstairs on the balconies, just come down the front steps if that's helpful. Just come. Thank you. Just come. 